Hello and welcome to the podcast for the September issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here and I'm delighted to be joined once again by Peter Hayward from TLID. Peter, let's start with a systematic review and meta-analysis and this is about the detection of MRSA. This is obviously a very important public health issue. This systematic review has looked at testing for staph aureus, uh, particularly the metacillin-resistant variety, on admission to hospitals to see whether finding out people's status, whether they're carrying MRSA, um, whether that knowledge can help reduce the number of bloodstream or surgical site infections during a hospital stay. An important thing to understand with this review is to be clear about the difference between this rapid testing uh, for MRSA and conventional testing by culture. Can you just cover that? Previously, testing has relied on taking swabs from various parts around a patient's body and then growing those in culture mediums to wait for the bacteria to expand in number to reach a detectable level and older tests would take anything up to over two days and then more recent culture tests still take up to a day to find out. There is a concern that during this time lag the infection of MRSA can be spread or may cause infections in bloodstream or at surgical sites. So the rapid tests actually use PCR techniques that target the genes specific to MRSA and enable a much more quick assessment of whether a patient is carrying the MRSA bacteria. And these tests can provide results in about two hours. Okay, so in terms of the results, a bit of a mixed bag, is that fair to say? The authors found 10 studies that looked at comparisons between rapid screening and conventional screening for MRSA. Most of these were interventional studies, and there was one unblinded cluster randomized crossover trial. And they analysed the results and found actually that On the majority of things, there wasn't a difference between uh, conventional testing and surgical site testing as far as reducing the number of bloodstream or surgical site infections. And actually, the only significant difference that they found, really, was that compared to no testing at all, rapid testing did reduce the number of bloodstream infections acquired during a hospital stay. What are the broad conclusions from the authors then about this and really the overall message of the paper is that rather than getting worked up about what sort of test to use the most important thing is to actually provide these tests and moving on to a review this is uh, interesting it's looking at plasmodium vivax malaria now this is interesting because certainly whenever whenever we tend to discuss malaria uh, we're looking at the the cause of of serious malaria in sub-saharan africa we're looking at plasmodium falciparum malaria so this review is actually basically saying hang on a sec, there's an awful lot of disease burden here to do with Plasmodium vivax, and it's massively overlooked in terms of research and science. So why is that, Peter? Well, yes, you're quite right, Richard. Falciparum malaria really is the one that we tend to focus on. The reason for that is... I mean, it is a very uh, massive problem, and it causes a very, very severe disease. So it has gained a lot of the focus. But actually, as people investigate more the situation with malaria around the world, there's a greater appreciation that falciparum isn't the only cause of malaria, and that actually a great many people are affected by or living in areas where they are at risk of other forms of malaria. Plasmodium vivax malaria is a particularly poorly understood and poorly appreciated type of malaria. Indeed, Peter, because I think the authors say, don't they, that one of the challenges is, is that it this has a sort of complex sort of genetic 
profile and characteristics about it that, that make it difficult to study. Is that generally right and why researchers shied away from it? Vivax has uh, these various uh, traits that make it quite different to other forms of malaria and really set it apart. So the type of red blood cells that it affects, only affecting the immature reticulocyte blood cells. And Plasmodium vivax also has this particular stage in its life cycle called the hypnozoite. And this can lie dormant in the liver for many years, causing disease a long time after the disease appears to have been cured or after exposure. So, Peter, what priorities do the authors set out in terms of Plasmodium vivax malaria? So the authors point out that we need to know more about Plasmodium vivax. We're starting to get a good picture of the burden of disease with 2.5 billion people at risk and up to 80 million or 300 million clinical cases every year caused by Plasmodium vivax. But there are still many things that we don't understand about the disease, more about the life cycle, more about we need to know more about this hypnozoite stage and the pathways by which the parasite infects blood cells and maintains itself in the bloodstream. And we also need to investigate more uh, how we can treat this disease and also prevent it. And finally, Peter, let's discuss the leader briefly, the leading edge, which is commenting about the recent uh, international aid society meeting that took place in Cape Town. And you know all about this because you were there and you did those wonderful podcasts for us um, a couple of weeks ago. Let's start off with some positives. Obviously, the editorial makes makes a number of points. But in terms of successes in the HIV world, particularly since the year 2000 meeting I went to, actually, which was held in Durban, the first time it was in in uh, South Africa, what, what are the good areas of progress that have happened, Peter? Well, since then, so much has happened, Richard. As you'll know from being at that conference, it was really a point at which the global community really acknowledged the scale of the problem in in poorer areas and really started to think about how to address the scale of the HIV AIDS problem, where resources were poor and where health systems weren't really in a particularly good state at that point. And since the 2000 conference, uh, so many initiatives have been started to extend treatment, to roll out treatment to these areas and to start to educate people and instigate prevention strategies in areas uh, of limited resources. We're at a stage now where more people than ever before are receiving treatment and those treatments have improved. Yes, so clearly some successes over the past nine years, but always with these things, clearly there remain many important priorities and targets that are not being met or about to be missed. Do you want to comment on those? Despite the advances in treatment, what we have is a situation where... um, We have today 3 million people receiving treatment, but 7 million people are still without treatment. And this despite the ambitious targets set by various governments and health organisations, such as the 3 by 5 campaign, which aimed to have 3 million people on treatment by 2005, and the universal access target, which aimed to extend treatment to everyone who needed it by 2010. And as you can see from the figures of 3 million receiving treatment, but 7 million still wanting, we're a long way short of achieving these goals. And I guess, Peter, one obvious problem is, you know, we are living in in times of global financial restrictions. That is clearly going to have an impact on, on the donor funding of HIV programmes. So yes, Richard, some predictions are suggesting that the Global Fund, which administers funds for various AIDS campaigns and treatment programmes, is going to be left with a shortfall of $3 billion for 2010. And this is obviously going to impact their ability to provide money to these campaigns and programmes. What we need to do in the in the future is try to ensure that the 
the contributors to the global fund, the, the G8 nations and the other rich nations which, which give a lot of money and have done so much so far and promised so much for the future, don't renege on their commitments of money. But what we're also going to have to do is face the fact that the growth in funding is going to decline. And